Amen. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to Colossians chapter 3. As your turn, oh, and if you are a kid, you are dismissed at this moment. I remembered. Okay, Colossians chapter 3. If you in this room this morning have sin in your life, can you raise your hand? Sin in your life this morning. Okay, good. Oh, got distracted there. Okay, good. This sermon's for you. Colossians chapter 3. We are looking at verses 5 through 11. That's my intro. Okay, we got sin. We have to do something about it. That's why we're in this passage right here. Starting in verse 5, going through 11. This is the word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him and ask him to bless it this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for tough passages. Thank you for uncomfortable passages, God, that you put them in here because we need them desperately. So help us to study it, help us to submit to it, God, where I pray that it's not my opinion that's, that's spouted this morning. I pray that it's not man's wisdom that is given, but God, we pray that the Spirit of God will work through the Word of God. That's what we're banking on this morning, that's what we need, that's what we desire. So God, I pray that you are glorified this morning. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can produce fruit in us. God, I pray for there to be death in this room this morning of sin. That there can be freedom through crucifixion, daily dying to our sins, God. I pray that it can happen. God, it can't happen through our own effort. It can't happen through our own wisdom and ingenuity and and coming up with plans. God, we've tried that, we failed. But God, we need you through the power of the Holy Spirit to produce death in our lives. Help us do it, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I have two points this morning. Uh, number one, beat wrath to the punch. Number two, change your wardrobe. First off, beat wrath to the punch in verses 5 through 6. It says, put to death, therefore. So we have a command, put to death. But this command is based upon what preceded it. You see that? Put to death, therefore. So that therefore shows us that he's basing the command put to death on what has just been said. So the ground of this command to put to death is found in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And specifically, um, I want to point out as well, chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? So I want to point out that 2 verse 20. And then we have our, our last week's passage, 1 through 4, which says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. See that? So we've been raised with Christ. We've died with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life, and we're going to appear with Christ in glory one day. To sum it up, you've died with Christ to the world. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. So that command is based on this whole doctrine of union with Christ that we talked about last week. Now he tells us to put to death what is earthly earthly in you. I want to be clear that our, uh, our physical bodies are gifts. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's not saying that we need to you know, put our, our actual bodies to death because those are gifts. But our, our, obviously, as well, our physical bodies are battlegrounds of temptation, are they not? Uh, due to what Paul will call or has called our body of flesh, which is our sinful nature that we have within us. So just as we are to set our mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, we are supposed to give life to the spirit in us from above and put to death what is earthly in us. That's what we're going to see for these next two weeks. It's like a little mini-series here in verses 5 through 17 where he says, all right, you need to put this off and you need to put this on. Okay, so it's kind of like crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, so you need to kill this and you need to give life to this. Put off, put on. The Christian life is all about this. It's about putting certain things in your life to death and birthing certain things in your life. And today, we are going to be focusing on putting things to death. Because to be a Christian means to be a killer. Okay, you're called to put things to death in your life. Become a Christian killer. Look at, the, look at those first three words. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul doesn't tell us to ignore our sin. Paul doesn't tell us to deny our sin. Paul doesn't tell us to make excuses for our sin. Paul doesn't tell us to cuddle with our sin. Paul tells us to put it to death. The response to putting your faith in the cross is for your life to daily look like a cross. The Christian life should look like a daily crucifixion, daily hanging our sins up upon the cross. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We've been talking so much to the book of Colossians about the beautiful truths of the gospel so much and we are going to continue to do so. But you do not truly understand the gospel if you think it means you can be gentle with your sin. God's love for you in Christ is no reason to let your sin linger or make excuses. 
Okay, that's not what the gospel means. So Christian, if this sounds like you, if you're in this room and you think you have this idea in your mind that like, okay, Jesus saved me, so it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I'm participating in. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, how I'm treating my sin. Let me charge you by the authority of God's word right here that we are called to put our sin to death. We don't put our sin to death to earn our forgiveness, but we put our sin to death in light of our forgiveness. In light of the finished work of the cross, we put our sins to death. Since Jesus died and we die with Jesus, verse 3, for you have died, we do the violent work of putting our sin to death. That is what you are called to do this morning if you are in Christ. So what should, we, what should we be putting on the cross this morning? Look at the text. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There's this list of five. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first four, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, all sum up and describe sexual sin. And this morning, I really want to be an equal opportunity offender here, okay? So my goal here is to make you all convicted of your sin. Uh, sexual immorality is this word porneia, which is just any kind of sexual sin. Impurity means moral corruption, often applied to sexual sins. Passion can be interpreted or um, translated as lust, referring to sexual sin in the other two instances, which is Romans one twenty six and 1 Thessalonians 4.5, that will read here in a second. And then finally, evil desire is wanting things that are not good, often sexual. And it might be a link word to greed. We're going to talk about greed, covetousness here in a second. Evil desire can kind of go both ways there. But sexual immorality is the main phrase here, porneia, and the other three are kind of filling in, describing, defining the meaning. So Paul says to put to death sexual immorality. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the three divisions of Old Testament law. Hope you're here for that one. It's on the podcast if you need to listen to it. But there's the civil law, there's the ceremonial law, and the moral law. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says there in that context that the civil law and the ceremonial law were a shadow of Christ and fulfilled in him and his life and his death and his resurrection and the new covenant. But we pointed out in that sermon that the moral law of the Old Testament still reflected the heart of God for us today. And this applies to how we interpret the word porneia, the word sexual immorality. So when Paul says this word, and by the way, when Jesus says this word, he is saying it as a Jewish man who believes in the authority of the Old Testament and affirms the Old Testament sexual ethic. So when Paul says, put to death porneia, he means put to death what's forbidden in Leviticus 18. So I encourage you to go read Leviticus 18, and that's what's in his head. And by the way, the same thing is when Jesus says, you know, sexual immorality is a sin, he's saying that based on the authority of God's word in the Old Testament. So, what do we need to put to death? Any sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman. This includes lustful thoughts. We see Jesus here in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he goes on to say, this will sound familiar if you think about put to death, therefore, of sexual immorality. Look what Jesus says here, Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So when Paul says put to death sexual immorality, he means put to death lustful thoughts. Looking at lust with a woman or a man. He also means pornography, adultery, sex outside of marriage, like living together, homosexuality. It's all wrapped up here in in this, this term, porneia, sexual immorality. It's also summed up in the sixth commandment itself. You shall not commit adultery. So my question for you this morning is what sexual sin do you need to put to death in your life? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 through says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There it is again. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion, which that word passion is the same one here in our text this morning, of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Got one more verse I want to say real quick. So, we're coming hard out of the gate this morning. Sexual morality, we're putting it to death. Hopefully, I don't know what you struggle with, if it's lustful thoughts, if it's homosexuality, if it's living together, if it's sex before marriage, if it's adultery, I don't know. But you might be tempted in this room to, to get upset with me, right? Um, to, to, to get, that happens a lot when you're getting convicted of your sin, to get upset with me. But I, want you to point, I want to point you to verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is not Matt's opinion, this message, trust me. I would choose something else to talk about this morning. But, if you disregard this, you're disregarding God. Hear the message. If Jesus is Lord, He's Lord of your sex life. You can't compartmentalize it. Jesus' Lordship is not like a cafeteria where you pick and choose where you want Him to be in control, where you want Him to be in control of your finances, or you want Him to be in control of your future or your plans, but you're going to leave Him out of your sex life. No, instead, Paul says that if you are going to be raised with Christ, if you are going to be hidden with Christ in God, if Christ is going to be in, if Christ is going to be your life, as it says in verse 4, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, including sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, put them all to death. Next we see covetousness. It says, put to death what is earthly in you, covetousness. This is greed. This is the inappropriate desire for more and more and more. This might have a sexual connotation to it as well. The tenth commandment is you shall not covet. Did you know that it is a sin to desire something for yourself that belongs to someone else? This is so natural to us in our flesh, is it not? 
you know, if I'm driving down the road and I see a flat blue 2020 Toyota Tacoma, something happens inside of me. It really does. I want it to be mine. Now listen, coveting greed is not having desires. It's not having goals or ambitions. It's not bad or sinful to have a wish list for Christmas, okay? That can be good in its own proper context. But coveting is when we want something for ourselves that belongs to someone else. Coveting is the theft what lust is to adultery. The feeling, the emotion that says, that's yours and I want it to be mine. Covetousness loves yourself more than your neighbor. Instead of rejoicing in others' blessings, you mourn over the fact that they're blessed and you're not. It's considering yourself more, than, more significant than others. That's what it means to covet. To covet means to love creation more than the Creator. Because instead of being satisfied in Jesus, you're longing for other things to satisfy you. And in coveting, you're also claiming that God isn't a good father who has given you everything you need. So in a way we see that coveting, covetousness breaks the two most important commandments of loving God and loving neighbor. Because you're not loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, we might all perk up when I preach against the sin of homosexuality. I can get amens there if I, if I, if I rail against that one. Um, but then when we get to a sin like coveting, a sin listed in the Ten Commandments, and we can kind of treat it like a joke, can we not? Brothers and sisters, we are called in this passage in verse 5 to put covetousness to death. Greed is evil. Coveting is a sin. It deserves hell. Why is it so serious? Look at the text. Covetousness, which is idolatry. We often think of idolatry as bowing down to some wooden carving and we think that we're exempt. But when we define idolatry as anything we love more than God and anything we serve more than God and anything we treasure more than God, we have to agree with Calvin who says that the human heart is a factory of idols. We just produce them and produce them and produce them. So I want to ask this morning, what are you greedy about what do you have an uncontrolled desire for more and more of and you're never satisfied who are you jealous of fill in the blank if I only had I would finally be happy you might constantly be wanting their bank account or their house or her body or his job or their friend group, or her kids. It seems so prevalent in our culture, in our society. But then Paul says in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. So tell me, church, for a sin that's not even supposed to be named among us, why is it so prevalent in our community, in our hearts? We need to put covetousness to death. Why should we be so motivated to put these sins to death? Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. This is a biblical truth. 
the God of the Bible is a God of wrath and his wrath is coming on account of these. That's what it says, on account of these, on account of sexual immorality, on account of greed. The wrath of God is coming. God's wrath is his holy, settled anger towards all evil and sin. God is going to come back in his perfect wrath and destroy all evil. Destroy all rebellion. Wrath is holiness's response to sin. That's what wrath is. And wrath burns at and burns up injustice. So, God's word for us this morning, according to verse 6, is that God's wrath is coming upon sin. God's wrath is coming upon sexual immorality and covetousness. So my point here is to beat wrath to the punch. Here's what I mean. God's wrath, God is going to unleash his wrath and anger on all sin. So what I'm pleading with you to do this morning is to unleash your wrath on your sins before God unleashes his wrath on those sins. To beat wrath to the punch. Because sin is going to get put to death either way. You're going to put it to death or God's going to unleash his wrath against it. This shows us that you will not get to enjoy your sexual immorality forever. You will not get to enjoy and participate in your idolatry forever because God's wrath is coming. It will be destroyed by fire. Therefore, put your sins to death. Now the good news for the Christian here in this text is that God's wrath has already come upon my sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus on the cross took all my sin and bore all my wrath. He was my substitutionary sacrifice. So the point here is not that Christians will face God's wrath, but that God's wrath is coming on these types of sins, so Christians should have no part in them. And if someone is habitually living in a way that would bring God's wrath upon them, it may be a sign that they aren't actually in Christ. Okay, so beat wrath to the punch. Point number two, change your wardrobe. Starting in verses 7 through 11 says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. The first thing that Paul shows us in verse 7 is that this vice list, that's what the, you know, scholars will call it a vice list because it's a list of sins. This list of sins describes who Christians once were. You see that in these in these, in these sins that the wrath of God is coming upon, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So there's this once now thing. We used to walk in those sins, but when, when we were living in them, but now something's happened. So first, this is humbling to look back and see who you used to be. This should be humbling for you this morning. That when we read verse 5, and when we read verse 8, this says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. That list of, of ten sins is not a list of sins of other people. Okay? It's, it's, it's describing you before Christ. So it's humbling to realize that we were not first-round draft picks. That God desperately hoped to get into his kingdom. But instead, we were sinful, earthly, sexual, immoral idolaters. Okay, that's who you were. Let that sink in. That's who, not others 
Not people outside of this room. Not people at Walmart right now. This is you. It's humbling. Number two, this shows us a really important picture of what salvation is. That in salvation, in the new birth, in becoming a saint, there is a true change in your life. Once we walked in sin, but now you must put them all away. Do you see the decisive change in the saint? Once, but now. So don't believe the lie that you can be united to Christ and cling to your sexual immorality. Don't buy the lie that you can be raised with Christ and hidden with Christ in God and still be committed to idolatry. With salvation comes the call to put to death what is earthly in you. There is a once now moment. To grab onto Christ means to let go of your sin. As we will see, this doesn't imply that you had to be perfect. But this does mean that those in Christ must put them all away. Do you see verse 8 where it says, but now you must put them all away. Not Maybe you could if it's convenient, if it's your personality, if you're a super Christian, but if you're in Christ, you must put them all away. Do you see the difference between saying, I'm in Christ, but I'm still going to identify with my old sin? Versus saying, I'm in Christ and I'm actively putting my indwelling sin to death. One of those is biblical Christianity and the other is worldly compromise. Because what verse 8 says is that if you are in Christ, you must put them all away. So there's no room to say, well, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm still going to hold on to this. Listen, so this is the reason why it's not hypocrisy to say that someone struggling with homosexuality has to repent to become a Christian. That's not hypocrisy because I will say that about every sin in the book. We will say that about every sin in the book. So we're not saying, well, if you're, a, if you're practicing homosexuality, you need to repent of that sin to become a Christian. But if you're a glutton, we don't care. No, every single one of them, you must put them all away. There is no room for acceptance of sin in the Christian life. We're called to forsake every single one of them. We're called to put every single one of them to death. That's what we're called to do this morning. So this is an equal opportunity offending time. Hey, whatever your sin is, whatever you're struggling with, I'm telling you and I'm telling myself, we need to put those sins to death. Third, this is a hope-giving doctrine. How, right? doesn't feel like there's much hope in the room this morning at the moment, but there is. Because this should give us, as one pastor called it, gospel optimism. As you see that if you were once dead in your sins and you once walked in them, but now you're not, now you're alive in Christ, you were once dead, but now you're alive, this should shape the way you view every single person you interact with. That the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. That everyone you come in contact with through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, can have a once-now moment just like you did. Do you believe that? Do you talk to people like that? Okay, so there is a Holy Spirit-driven shift in the life of everyone who places their faith in Christ. Look at the end of verses 9 through 10, where it says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
So that phrase right there is not a command. It's a statement. And it's the ground or the basis of the command. So he's saying, do not lie to one another, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. So Paul's saying you shouldn't lie because you've already put off the old self and you have already put on the new self. What does he mean? Paul's saying here that we have two different selves, that we have two different personalities or anything like that. But literally here the word self is man. So it's um, put, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man. When he says old man here... He means Adam, the old man Adam, a nature under the domain of darkness, controlled by sin and death and heading to hell. And when he says new man, he means Christ, putting on Christ, putting on a new nature under the kingdom, under the lordship of Christ, full of righteousness, life, and heading to heaven. Okay, so imagine getting traded from the worst team to the best team in a league. So imagine you were playing for the Cincinnati Reds. Okay, the Cincinnati Reds are pretty bad. Um, this past week they threw a no-hitter and lost. Okay, that's where we're at with the Cincinnati Reds. They threw a no-hitter and lost the game. Okay, so imagine, this is for Paige, they get traded to the Dodgers. I would, I would say the Braves, but they're just not the Dodgers. Okay, so when you switch teams, you get traded. First thing you do is you change your wardrobe. You've taken off the old jersey, and you've put on the new one. But also, when you put on the new jersey, you don't go along with the old jersey and its practices. So imagine you get traded from Cincinnati to the Los Angeles Dodgers. You walk into Dodger Stadium, and things are different. They do things differently there. And imagine saying, well, this is not how we do things in Cincinnati. Okay, that wouldn't fly very far, right? Because it's like you came from the Reds. You're going to do things how we do things here. You change and align yourself with what it's like to be in a winning organization. This is what he's kind of saying here is since you've put on the new self, since you've put on Christ, he's the jersey you're wearing now. He's the organization you're in, and he's who you identify with. And due to that, you're going to change the way you live your life. You've put on the new self. Seeing that, do not lie to one another. So the old self had its practices. That's what we see in verse 9. Have put off the old self with its practices. And we kind of see those in, in these vice lists. This list of 11 sins we've got here. Um, but now we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we see that being in Christ, putting on the new self, is not sinless perfectionism. So I've been talking really hard about sin here, and you might say, does this guy think we have to be perfect because I've got some lust, I've got some greed, um, I've got some, we're going to talk about some other sins, by the way, here in a second. It's going to get worse. Um, I've got these things like, are you saying I have to be perfect? No, because if you look at the text here, it says, which is the, the new self, is being renewed in knowledge. This is a present tense process. So since you are being renewed, it doesn't mean like you're perfect already, but there's a change happening in your life. But hey, I've got great news this morning. If you're in Christ, you're being renewed. If you're feeling conviction in your heart right now about something I mentioned or will mention, good news, you're being renewed this morning. Through that conviction process, actually, right now in the preaching of the Word of God, if you're feeling sorry for your sin, God is doing something in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of His Word. You're being remade. After the image of its creator. So there's this new self 
and you are being remade, renewed after the image of its creator. So Jesus Christ, 115, is the image of the invisible God. And through union with Christ, those who have put on the new self are being renewed after the image of its creator. Meaning that God's going to grow you. He's going to make you new. He's going to make you look different. But here's the point. You're getting made currently to look like Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you've put on the new man... Christ is currently, right now, renewing you, remaking you, fashioning you to look more like the image of Christ. To look more like God himself. Now, in light of this, what we just talked about, can you see how there's no possible way that you can continue living in the old self with its practices when the Holy Spirit of God is currently renewing you to look more like Jesus? That's what salvation means. How does this happen? It happens in knowledge, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are renewed to look like Jesus through knowing Jesus. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this renewing of your mind, this renewal in knowledge, causes you to be transformed. And we see here that we're being transformed into the image of its creator, and our creator is Christ. So we have to seek to know and love God with our minds. We need to immerse ourselves in the truths of Scripture. We need to let these words define our life and existence. So are you reading your Bible every day? Are you memorizing Scripture? Are you in a small group to study God's Word together? I want to encourage you to take the next step of growth in your Bible intake. And I promise you, based on the authority of God's Word, that God will use it, if you're in Christ, to renew you, to make you more like your Creator. Okay, another vice list. Here we go. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Anger means expressed hostility towards someone or something. This is what God feels towards sin, as we saw in verse 6. So in its context, this obviously means sinful anger. We show our anger in our attitude, in our speech, in our actions. Do you fly off the handle? Do people have to walk on eggshells around you? Are you constantly posting rants on Facebook? Some of you may feel exempt. I want to look at this word wrath. Anger and wrath. One commentator um, translated the word wrath as exasperation. A boiling agitation of the feelings. Respectable impatience. Irritation when things go wrong. Uh, just last week, I was um, making a changing table for Madeline. And I don't know if it was anger or wrath. It was probably something beyond that, okay? Because I got this whole thing done. I'm using these little hex keys. You know, those little, I hate those things. And, and I finally get it done. It's standing up on its two feet after so long. And then I realized that I missed a step at the very beginning of this thing. And the only way to get this thing made was to completely take it apart and do it again. And so Chelsea and her mother and my mother-in-law came into the room and I was like holding this piece in my hand. And I said, how much did this cost? And if it was a certain number, I won't say what the number was, I was about to tear it apart with my bare hands. But it was way too high. And so I calmly put it down and eventually we got that thing put together. Okay, we can laugh at this and hopefully 
um, we're laughing at because we've all been there. And I hope you see that I'm working on putting this, I'm doing this whole putting sin to death thing along with you guys. But why is stuff like that such a big deal? If we remember that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, that Jesus gets to tell us what to do, and Jesus gets to tell our circumstances what to do, that he is in control over every single aspect of our lives, we see how anger and wrath is such a dreadful sin. St. Clair Ferguson said, For the root cause of impatience and exasperation lies in our response to the providence by which God superintends our lives. At the end of the day, the deep object of our exasperation is the Lord himself. In your anger and in your wrath, in your frustration, in my rage putting together that changing table, I'm not angry at just random things that are happening, but I'm angry at the providence and sovereignty of God. How could we not put something like that to death? The word malice here means being nasty to other people, ill will, wishing the worst for people. The word slander is character assassination. Instead of murdering your sins, you murder other people's names. You're talking badly about people behind their back, trashing people, complaining and murmuring and being critical. Obscene talk is offensive or disgusting talk. Do not lie, right there in verse 9, means speaking in falsehood, faking it with other people, deceiving other people, pretending to be something you're not. All these sins are how we treat and talk to other people, specifically within the context of the church. So take stock of how you talk to the people in this room. Are you nasty? Do you slander people? Are you constantly gossiping and critical? Are you hypocritical and two-faced? Do you say things in the car that you would never say in here to people's faces? Do you tear people down? Do you lie when it's easy and convenient? Do you deceive people? God, help us repent. We want to put our sins to death. Do you see how this passage just condemns us all? And this is what we're called to do. Put it to death. Okay, last verse here. Verse 11. It says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This verse seemed a little out of nowhere to me. I almost wanted to put it in the next, in the next week, but I kept it in here. Because I think the key of plugging it into this paragraph is to realize that Paul has been listing sins of disunity and division. Stuff like anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. You've all seen how that can destroy a church, right? And so then he has this um, he's, he has this verse talking about the unity that we should have together as people in Christ. And he shows us the theology of unity is how I want to say it. So he, he has these differences here. There's the, the list of opposite, opposites. Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Greek and Jew is an ethnic difference. Circumcised and uncircumcised is a religious difference. Barbarian and Scythian is a cultural difference. And slave and free were a class difference. So you see all these differences here. Uh, We live in a time of division. You probably did not know that. But I'm here to tell you. That's why I'm here is to tell you that we're kind of in a divided time in our culture today. Um, There's division in this room right now. Division on politics on theology, on school choices, on worship music, on the future, on the past. 
There's different ethnicities, different classes, different ages, different cultures, different life stages. With a group like us, how can we ever find unity? In our age, on, if you go on social media, if you go on television, you see a lot of malice and slander and lying and obscene talk. And that is not how it is going to be here based on the authority of the word of God. How can we do that? How can a group like us be unified? We're closing here, I promise. Look at the text. But, so he lists, in here, that, that word here means in the new self, in this new creation, in this new self. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Number one, Christ is all. Christ is the reason for the universe. He is the highest good. He's the reason we exist. He is simply everything, and Christ is in all. Just how Paul said, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ indwells every single believer in this church. So there is, as Sinclair Ferguson said, a twofold reality in the church. Jesus Christ means everything to all members, and his spirit dwells in all members. So in theory, there should be no intimacy in the world deeper and closer than this. There is one Christ, and he is in each of us. So we look around. We should look around in this room and say, what an enormous variety we have in here. But in all that variety, there is something. No, there is someone that we have in common. The same Christ who indwells him also indwells her and indwells me too. And he is everything to each of us. And when we get there, Christ is all and in all. That's where our unity will be found. Let that be the driver of our unity. Being in Christ doesn't make a Greek a Jew. It doesn't make a barbarian a Hollywood elite. It doesn't eliminate our ethnicity, our class, and our differences. But it does make those differences minimal in light of what we have in common. That we live for the same purpose. We are empowered by the same power. We love the same Lord. And we are indwelt by the same Spirit. Christ is all and in all. And when we possess that, when we know that, when we understand that... We can be united in this room. Okay, in conclusion, here's your choice. John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. No neutrality here. Okay, Put to death your sin or your sin is going to put you to death. Put to death your sexual immorality or your sexual immorality is going to put you to death. Put to death your wrath or your wrath is going to put you to death. That's all we have to do. Okay, make your choice. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for this word. It's tough. God, I pray that you can cut us so that you can heal us. God, I pray that you can drive us to repentance, confession. God, I pray that we can forsake our sin. Ultimately, God, I pray that you can, by the power of your Holy Spirit, put our sins to death. God, I pray there's real life change in this room. I pray that um, some people delete apps, some people throw away their phones, some people ask for forgiveness for their anger, some people um, can um, you know, repent of their gossip, that they will talk differently, behave differently, think differently. God, I pray that we can put our sins to death. That can only happen through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word, God. Do what only you can do. In your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys can stand up. We're about to respond. Here's what I want you to do.
Um, we're going to sing this song together. Um, and I want you to deal with your hearts in this room as we sing. Um, ask the Holy Spirit to apply this truth of, of this text to your heart and repent. Sing out, we're going to sing and we'll, we'll pray and we'll, we'll go. But I want to encourage you to let the word do some work in your heart in this moment as we let it dwell in us.